0: Galatians chapter 5 in your Bible. We are continuing in our series, How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. We're almost finished with the series. Uh, Just three more sermons after this Sunday. The title of today's message is The Gospel Creates Love. The Gospel Creates Love. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 15 of Galatians chapter 5. So Galatians chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 13, Paul the Apostle writes and says to us, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law whole can be summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this word to us. Lord, I thank you for the effect it's having in my life. I just confess it. I seldom love the way that I should love, especially those who appear to me to be unlovable. I want to be a man of greater love. And so I ask and we ask together that, Holy Spirit, you would so, even today and in the coming days, so impress upon our hearts the love of God for us in Christ Pour out in our hearts the love of God for us in Christ. That you would saturate our lives, our hearts, and our minds with the love of God in a way that would radically transform us and our relationships and how we interact with people. Lord, we need you to do that. Lord, I ask that you would please anoint me to communicate your beautiful truth in a way that honors you, is consistent with your word, and accomplishes your purposes in this church and in the world for your glory. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is turning a corner now in the book of Galatians. Paul's normal mode of operation was to begin one of his letters by explaining theology and theological concepts. And then he would always turn a corner and say, now, here's how you apply this. Okay. It was very important to the apostle Paul that theology was applied. And in fact, I think Paul would say that Theology, apart from application, is meaningless. Theology is meaningless if it's not transformative in our lives. Unless these truths can be lived out in everyday living, then there's something profoundly missing. And I would even say further that if theology doesn't affect, change, transform, and renew our relationships then something has been lost on us. So so Paul is rounding the corner here from having explained a lot of gospel theology for four and a half chapters, and he's going to get right down to relationships. So he says in verse 13, you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but do not use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. We have been called to live in freedom. There's lots of different freedom or sorts of freedom in culture, in America, even within the Bible. But there's a specific sort of freedom that Paul is talking about here in the book of Galatians, and we referenced this last week. We have been set free from the need to please God through our obedience in order to be accepted by God, both for initial salvation and for daily Christian living. The degree to which God accepts us, has favor upon us, and blesses us is not dependent upon our performance or our ability to keep the rules. Jesus has done everything right on our behalf because we do everything wrong all the time. So we've been set free from the need of trying to earn something, some position or place from God. Now, when a man or woman hears that, they sometimes fall into two opposite but equal errors, The first error that people sometimes fall into is to lose this freedom. We spoke about this last week, falling back into slavery, as chapter 1 says. And the second equal but opposite error is to abuse this freedom. People often hear that we've been set free from the burden of the law, the necessity of obeying the rules in order to be accepted by God, Sometimes they don't lay a hold of that, and so they lose it and go back to that slavery of having to please God through rules. And other times, they abuse it by saying, well, I'm not going to do anything about the rules. So in verse 1, Paul was telling us not to lose gospel freedom. But here in verse 13, Paul is telling us not to abuse gospel freedom. In verse 1, Paul wants us not to fall back into slavery. But in verse 13, he tells us not to fall into selfishness. In verse 1, Paul is warning against legalism. But in verse 13, he's warning against license. License. What, what does that mean? If you look it up in the American Oxford Dictionary, license is the freedom to behave as one wishes. Paul has already warned against trying to relate to God according to the rules in our performance, and now he's warning against license, the mindset that says, well, I'm accepted by God through the gospel, then I could just do anything that I want to do. And we sometimes think, okay, I'm, I'm set free, I'm, I'm going to do whatever it is. It is precisely at that moment that we must realize that we have there a failure to understand what it means to be set free. And we have there a failure to grasp the implications of grace and the gospel for our lives. You see, we have not been set free to sin. We have been set free from sin. And there is a profound difference. We have not been freed up that we could do bad we've been freed up that we actually might do good. We know that we have not been saved by good works, but do you know that you have been saved for good works? Ephesians 2.10. It is true that we are free from the burden of the law, but we are not free from the truth of the law. And the truth of the law is summed up for us very succinctly in verse 14 where he says the whole of the law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. He gets right down to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in Matthew 22, Jesus said that you could sum up the law with two things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul here goes right to the neighbor part. But, but loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength, the first commandment, the greatest commandment, is a backdrop to this. And what Paul knows is that if you're doing good at loving your neighbor, you're clearly doing well at loving God. Yeah. Okay, so, so that, that's a backdrop. And it, if you're not doing well at loving people, there's probably some areas of trouble in, in loving God, the first commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's our neighbor? That question has been asked before. Well, we ought not to think of our neighbor merely as a person that lives next to us. We're living in a different culture than the time of Jesus. And then uh, this really would pertain mostly to your neighbor because that was pretty much your world, your neighborhood. It wasn't a uh, transit society. It wasn't a commuter society like ours. We go somewhere else to do almost everything. We go other places for recreation, for work, for all sorts of stuff. But there, your world, your world, excuse me, really was your neighborhood. Now... Your neighbor really is that group of people within your sphere of influence, okay, that you know and are purposeful about coming in contact with, or that just are in contact with you through the rhythm and the flow of your life. This is your neighbor, so we need to expand that beyond the people that live to the right or the left of you. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. What the Bible isn't doing here is prescribing or teaching self-love. Rather, it is assuming that you have self-love. It's assuming that you love yourself. You do love yourself. We love ourselves, that's why we get nice haircuts. That is why we buy nice clothes. That is why we eat certain foods that taste good to us and nourish our bodies. That's why we watch things that we want to watch and do things that we want to do because we love ourselves. All those things are expressions of loving oneself. We we do that. Even for those of you that have a sense of self-loathing, your perceived self-loathing is actually a function of your self-love you see in some way you let yourself down and so now you've just become another person that you love that let you down and added to the list of those who you love but it's actually a function of your self-love now what can we say about self-love self-love is spontaneous self-love is unhesitating it's natural it's instinctual it, it's immediate no matter what the circumstance is, we usually know immediately how to love ourselves in that moment. We're threatened. Here's how I love myself. We're cold. Here's how I love myself. I'm hungry. Here's how I love myself. I'm bored. Here's how I love myself. Right? It's immediate, spontaneous, unhesitating, natural. It's in that way that we're to learn to love people. Unhesitatingly. Spontaneously. Immediately. Immediately learning to love people. So if, as Paul says here, loving others is truly the whole of the law, then we very quickly realize two things. Number one, that what we have fundamentally failed to do as humanity is love one another. If the whole of the law is love your neighbor as yourself, then what we have fundamentally failed to do is love one another. Remember, the backdrop is the first commandment to love the Lord your God, okay? But, but the second commandment, loving others, your neighbor as yourself, is a, is a function of that. So the whole of the law can be summed up in that. The biggest problem that we face, other than not loving God rightly, is that we don't love each other rightly. Remember that the law only and always shows us to be bad and it has proven us to be bad when it comes to loving our neighbor. The second thing that we realize very quickly of loving others as a whole of the law is that God has never in any way at any time freed us from the responsibility of loving others. He's freed us from the penalty of having failed to do so He's freed us from the burden and the guilt we incur by failing to keep the law. But God has never at any time freed us from the responsibility of loving others. Remember, to be saved is to be remade in the image of God. We were initially made in the image of God, but that image of God in us was was marred, perverted, and muddied by sin. Original sin that we inherit and intentional sin that we commit. When we're born again by the Spirit of God through the gospel, we are remade. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are new creation. We are remade in the image of God. What can we say about being made in the image of God? Multitudinous things, but most profoundly, God is love. So if we're remade in the image of God and God is love, that that means that we have this new God-given capacity to love. That we have a, a, a new nature that is predisposed to loving others as we love ourselves. And loving others then is the clearest and purest evidence that a man or a woman has been saved by grace. Notice what I said there. There is and there ought to be clear evidence that someone has been saved. If grace is functioning in the life of a man or a woman, it's gonna be observable if they've experienced the saving grace of God through saving faith, it's going to be observable in their lives. Because remember, justification is not merely a legal declaration of God by God where he says, okay, you are now declared innocent even though you're guilty and worthy of being treated excellent even though you're unworthy. It's not merely a declaration. But there is a work of God through justification whereby we are changed because we are forgiven... We are filled with the Holy Ghost. We are made new creations, and we are daily experiencing the love of God. You cannot be forgiven, filled with the Holy Ghost, made new, experience the love of God, and remain unchanged. Sorry, you just can't. There's a transformation that takes place immediately and, and in process through salvation, through justification. There will always be evidence that we are saved by grace through faith. That's what James was talking about in James chapter two, where he said, you believe? You tell me you have saving faith? Show me that you have saving faith by your life, by the things that you do. Because demons believe and they shudder. But, but if you have saving faith and have been saved by grace through faith, there's going to be tangible, observable differences in your life from before. John is saying the same thing in 1 John chapter 4. In fact, all the way through the epistle, but let's turn to 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4. We'll start reading verse 7 and go through verse 12. 1 John 4, verse 7. says, Dear friends, Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Verse 11, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. I want you to note the reasoning of verse 11 of 1 John 4. Okay, this is gospel reasoning. This is the gospel creating love, okay? He says, dear friends, since God loved us that much, in reference to God giving our son, his son for our sins, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. Catch the flow of logic here, okay? Since God loves us this much... What we ought to do is love one another. Here's a simple statement of fact. God loves you enough to give his son for your sins. Now there is a simple response. You ought to love one another. This is the ebb and the flow of New Testament theology. We call it the indicative imperative paradigm. Follow me. An indicative is a statement of fact, okay? It indicates something. An indicative. The carpet is red. Okay, that's an indicative, a statement of fact. An imperative is a command. Come, get on the carpets. That would be a command, okay? So the ebb and the flow of New Testament theology is all of the imperatives, the commands to do something, follow or are attached to indicatives, statements of something. The things that we are called to do, we are only called to do them in light of what God has done for us. So do you see the indicative and the imperative in 1 John 4, 11? The indicative is, dear friends, since God loves us that much, it's a statement of God's love. The associated command, the imperative is, surely we ought to love one another. We love one another in light of, as response to, how much we have been loved. You see, for the Christian, doing the right thing is always a response to the thing that God has done for us in Christ. And it is so in three ways. The first way that we already mentioned, the love of God changes us. It changes us so that there is a response to the stated, evident love of God. It changes us immediately and is processed. Secondly, the love of God in Christ motivates us. The love of God in Christ motivates us. Because when we're saved, we realize what's been done for us. To some degree, we realize and we wonder at what's been done for us. And so it causes there to be this deep and authentic sense of gratitude. I'm thankful that God saved a wicked sinner like me. If there's not this authentic sense of gratitude, something's wrong with you. I'm just going to be honest. If you've been saved and there's not this real sense of gratitude, something is awry in your heart. So when we think upon what God has done for us in Christ, it causes there to be this authentic sense of gratitude which cultivates and yields true love for God. Cultivates and yields true love for God. And and a true love for God will accomplish many things in our lives. Among them is obedience. Obedience. Jesus said it succinctly in John 14, 15, when he said, if you love me, you will obey me. Right? Indicative imperative. You love me, obey me. If you love me because you're overflowing with a sense of gratitude at what I've done for you, then obey me. So for the Christian, doing the right thing is always a response to the thing that God has done for us in Christ. First, because the love of God in Christ changes us. Second, because the love of God in Christ motivates us. We have a new motivation for doing right. comes from gratitude and love. And then thirdly, the love of God in Christ shapes us. It forms our lives. Ephesians 5, verse 1 says, Imitate God in everything you do because you are dear children of God. And then verse 2 says, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us. Notice again the logic in that. We're called to imitate God, right, in, in loving others and doing good and doing right. We're called to imitate God because we are dear children. So there's the indicative, the statement of fact, you are dear sons and daughters of God. And then the imperative, the associated related command is, so imitate God. And the second verse, follow Jesus in his example of love. You are dear sons and daughters of God. So imitate him as loving children. The thing that a well loved child wants to do is imitate his or her mom or dad. That's, that, that's what kids do. And, and we often discover this uh, negatively. At least this is what's happening in my life, you know, especially with my 10 year old son. I have, um, I'll just be honest, I have a bit of a, a dirty mouth by Christian standards. And so I hear my son saying things that I said, and I'm like, oh. Oh, that's not good. But, but when they're little kids, they don't, they're, they're not making value judgments on whether or not what mom or dad is doing is, is good or bad. They're assuming it's good. The point is, they're just imitating. That, that's what a well-loved child does, is want to imitate mom or dad. You are well-loved children of God. Therefore, imitate God. Follow the example of Christ. Live a life filled with love because you are well loved children. Yes. Remember back in Galatians chapter 4 when we talked about the fact that we're, we no longer relate to God as slaves who have a duty to fulfill, but rather we relate to God as sons and daughters who have the love of the Father. So the gospel motivation for obedience is always the love of the Father. Why do we obey? Because of the love of the Father shown to us. The opposite of obedience out of love is obedience out of fear. And that is exactly what we've been set free from. Before we realized the gospel and came to faith in Christ, we feared God. I'm gonna try to do the right thing because otherwise God may punish me or or God may desert me or God won't bless me, or things won't go well. And so we function with regards to keeping the rules out of a place of fear. But what the gospel has done is brought us a couple different kinds of freedom. Conscience freedom, right? And that was the subject of last week's sermon, that our consciences are free from guilt because Christ died in our place upon the cross. And now the subject of this week's sermon is that we have motivational freedom. We don't function from a place of fear anymore. The motive to do good, to love others, to obey, isn't because God might punish us if we don't, or we won't receive a blessing if we don't. Rather, it's because his love has been lavished on us and upon us, in us, and through us, and so we do. We have conscience freedom and motivational freedom. So we obey God as beloved and loving sons and daughters, not as slaves. And the implications for each of those are profound for your own sense of well-being and for your relationship with others. Let's compare and contrast an approach to God in life as a slave to the law versus a child of love, okay? For a slave... Obedience is out of a sense of duty and is always a burden. Ah, this is what I have to do and I have to do it and I don't wanna do it and this isn't, this isn't what I want I'm burdened by that. So the person that tries to relate to God and live life as a slave to the law, for them obedience is always out of a sense of duty and is a burden. The child of love on the other hand, their obedience is out of joy and gratitude. Authentic joy and gratitude. And for the child of God, obedience is becoming the natural expression of their heart. It's becoming by work of the Spirit in the gospel, the natural expression of their heart, whereas previously the natural expression was rebellion and selfishness. Now obedience is becoming by work of the Spirit the natural expression of the heart in the child of God. Secondly, the slave functions from fear of rejection. Both before God and before humanity. They function from fear of rejection. And so what that does in the life of the person living like a slave in relation to God and others is it creates a closedness. They're closed off. Their, their sin causes them to run from God. They're closed off to God in certain areas of their life because of that deep sense of guilt and a fear of rejection. And they're closed off to other people because of a fear of rejection. If I, if I let this person in too much and then they reject me, that, that, that costs me too much. That, that hurts too much. Child of God, on the other hand, functions from a place of grace and acceptance and it creates in his or her life an openness and transparency. An openness and transparency before God Our our sin doesn't cause us to run from God anymore. Our sin causes us to run to God. Our source of forgiveness and joy. And an openness and a transparency before people. Because we are no longer rejected by the God of the universe. We have the acceptance of the God of the universe. So the opinions of other people don't mean as much anymore. So there's just this real authentic openness and transparency that happens because my sense of well-being and identity is not hanging on your every opinion of me because I'm a child of God's love. The slave has to practice deception to hide his or her failures from self and others because there's too much riding on their sense of identity. I, I only have as much value as I do well In the eyes of others and I only feel as good about myself as I do well in attaining my goals and my standards so on and so forth and so you practice deception with yourself and deception with others to put up a better veneer the child of God on the other hand has a quickness to repent A quickness to ask for forgiveness from others and to forgive others. A quickness to repent because we know that God is a source of forgiveness and joy for us through faith in Christ. And because the gospel has shown us that we are intrinsically and incredibly bad and because we've been forgiven by God, It's not that big of a deal for us to admit to other people when we're wrong. We're quick to say, I'm sorry. Many of you struggle with this. I know this because I know who you are. You just can't say you're sorry. You just just can't say that. You know what that is? That's a fundamental failure to understand and appropriate the implications of the gospel in your life. That because of what Christ has done for you, you are a well-loved, fully-loved, forgiven child, even though God knows every fault. And so, since God has seen everything and forgiven us, it's not that big of a deal for us to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. And other side of the coin, it's not that hard for us to forgive anybody of almost anything because we've been forgiven of everything. The slave... Let's the expectations and the approval of others become his or her motive and forms of standards. In other words, the slave says this, what do I have to do before people to be accepted by them? To meet their expectations? That becomes my standard and that is what I'll do. I'll do whatever it takes to be accepted of and approved by these people. And you've become a politician. You're nothing more than a politician. The child of God, on the other hand, lets the love and the acceptance of God become his or her motive and form of standard. In other words, what's right? I've been saved by a holy God, though I'm fully wicked. So so there is no standard that is too high for me to uphold as right and righteous. The slave, and this is, this is important for many of us, the slave sees trials that happen in their lives, tragedies, as paybacks from God for poor performance. This is happening to me because I didn't do well and God is punishing me. And so the slave then who's going through the trials is either filled with guilt because he or she senses, I, I deserve this, I was bad, and, and now God is doing this to me. So it accentuates a sense of guilt or they feel bitterness because they think, I'm better than she is. I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me, God? So the slave sees the tragedies of life as payback from God for poor performance and either feels guilty or bitter about it. But you see, the child of God sees the trials of life as the wisdom of a loving father. And the child of God knows that God won't give them what they deserve because what we deserve is bad. And so we don't feel guilty. And we know that what we deserve is far worse than we will ever get from God. And so we're not bitter. We're being treated more kindly than we've ever deserved. And finally, for the slave, repentance happens only begrudgingly because admitting failure is destructive to one's self-image. And so repentance before God and before people is a humiliating thing. Because if I did wrong and I have to admit that, then I'm less. That's how a slave functions, before God and before people. But you see, for a child of God who knows their acceptance through the gospel, admitting failure actually strengthens one's self-image. Because it reminds us that we are forgiven and loved despite our flaws. And repentance now isn't based on fear of rejection but on grief that you have dishonored and grieved the one who gave so much so that you will never be rejected. And you see, both approaches to God in life have profound effects on our interactions with other people. And when it comes to love and serving others in love, only the free child can freely become the slave of others. The reason being they aren't caught up in the race to be Better anymore. They've been freed from having to perform and show themselves better. So now they can pursue the betterment of others. I I don't have to be better than you to feel okay about myself. I don't have to be better for God to be accepted by God because of what Christ has done for me. So now that I'm free from having to be in the race of being better, I can pursue your betterment. So it's only the free child who can freely become the slave of others. Notice that paradox. There are many paradoxes within Christianity. There's another one. Only the free child can become the slave of others. Verse 13, use your freedom to serve one another in love. You are free, now serve somebody. There's a paradox. The the word serve is just a nice word for become a slave to. You're free, now be a slave to other people. You're free before God, serve other people in a selfless way. That's a paradox. Perhaps one of the ways that we begin to make sense of that paradox is when we look at the person of Christ, who is the Lord of all the universe, but who humbled himself to become the slave of all even dying upon the cross. Philippians chapter two says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave. There we have the Christian ideal of voluntary enslavement. You see, our freedom is based on the person of Christ, the beloved son who is never self-seeking, but is self-sacrificing. Christian freedom denotes the ability to sacrifice oneself for others, not to seek more for oneself. And so we have this juxtaposition of verse 13. Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another. Now, and here's where I close. Here's what we have a tendency to do in the church. In the church, we create this dichotomy that we've been talking about for the last 11 weeks of good Christian, bad Christian, right? We generally set ourselves up as a standard of holiness. I'm a good Christian or my little group. We're good Christians. You guys aren't doing the things that we think you ought to do and you're doing things we think you shouldn't do. You're bad Christians, Okay, now we connect the dots. Where this false dichotomy within Christianity comes from of good Christian, bad Christian is from a slavish mentality of self-promotion, right? I've got to prove myself, show myself to be good, to be better, and other suppressment. If we're really going to look good, we have to suppress other people. And so we create dichotomies, good and bad. Better than and worse than. And when the person who relates to God and life is a slave, does anything, for example, when, when they serve within the church, they don't do so from a place of selfless love for others, but rather they do it from a place of pride. I'm gonna come and I'm, I'm gonna serve you. Or they do it from a sense of duty. Well, here, here's what a good Christian does. They serve and they do these things in the church. So I'm gonna do that. And they always, the slave always, serves from a place of subtle self-promotion. If I do this, it will advance my cause here. And you've just become another politician. That's all you are. You're not a gospel-oriented Christian. You're a politician. And what that always leads to in the church is what Paul references in verse 15. Biting, devouring and destroying one another. The promotion of self, suppressing others. So one who relates to God as a slave and so approaches life that way from a place of fear can actually never truly love others because everything is done with a backdrop of self preservation You you might be loving people and doing things, but you're doing it with an agenda. I'm going to love you to increase my stature. I'm going to love you to ingratiate you toward me. I'm going to love you because I'm eventually going to want something from you. See, the person that functions as a slave before God can never truly love because there's always a backdrop of self-preservation and promotion agenda. But when we see ourselves and each other as sons and daughters, well-loved sons and daughters of God, and equal undeserving recipients of grace, then for the first time we are free to actually fulfill the law through love. Since Christ has satisfied the burden of the law for us, we are free to fulfill the heart of the law toward others in love. Because we, we don't need to be better than anymore. We don't need to advance our agenda because we've finally found everything that we need in Christ. And so for the first time, we are loving like Christ from a true place of selflessness. In fact, we, we don't even see people that way anymore of better than, less than. The gospel makes us blind to that. We, we, we eventually stop seeing people that way. For the first time ever, we we can actually give. And what we give to others is that which has been done for us. You see, because of our sin, we were very unacceptable before God. But we have been accepted by God because of what Christ has done for us. Because of our sin, we were thoroughly unlovable in the eyes of God. But we have been brought the love of God through what Christ has done for us. Because of our sin, we were wholly undeserving. But we are blessed by God because of what Christ has done for us. And and the only authentic, true response to those indicatives, those statement of facts, is that we begin to accept those who, for some reason, were previously unacceptable to us. We begin to love those who people would say are unlovable. And we begin to bless those who are decidedly undeserving. For that is what God has done for us in Christ. And we realize that love is both a noun and a verb. Love is a noun. It's a feeling. But love is also a verb. It's an action. And for you, Christian, the Holy Spirit has ordained and enabled you to experience and give love as both a noun and a verb. The Holy Spirit is causing you to feel differently about people and to do better toward people. You see, once we've lost ourselves in the love of God in Christ and found all that we need in Him, we are both free and enabled to love others. And we realize that serving one another in love is the clearest and purest evidence of a heart that has truly been set free by grace. But to just continue to satisfy our sinful nature is to misunderstand, abuse, and misuse the freedom that has been brought to us by grace. Lord, we ask for help in these things. I ask for help. Lord, I'm I'm not the lover that I should be on any level. And, And we would just ask that the truth of God's love would become more real to us. That it might become more real through us. We just ask as we pray many times before that even now as we begin to sing and worship and meditate and pray, the Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd pour the love of the Father into our hearts. That you'd lavish the love of the Father upon us. That you would even overwhelm us with the love of the Father. And Lord, we just ask that that would never be lost on us. That your love would cause us to love. And a real authentic, powerful way that would be redemptive and beautiful and healing within the church and radically witnessing of who you are in the world. Please do that in us, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. If you need help with anything today, the prayer team will be up here on my right and my left. Communion is here to celebrate the love of the cross and the carpets are here to worship.